song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today, Dave. Kayfabe, Nick. Kayfabe. <laughs> That's, that is both the topic and what we're uh, keeping. Uh, and we want. And just generally, I just want you to shut up about everything. <laughs> um, we wanted to start out because I think we want to set a definition early of what we mean by kayfabe. And there's a couple of different ways to look at it. You were nice enough to give us some definitions. Uh, would you like to read the first one? Absolutely. So uh, if you're familiar with the classic, like, old school comedy record bit about all the different kind of definitions and usages of the word fuck, uh, I, I was inspired by that uh, classic bit uh, to kind of pull out some, some definitions of the different usages of kayfabe. So the first one, and I think the one that we most broadly and generally mean, is like using the word as a noun to mean the alternate, almost realistic universe in which the action and drama of professional wrestling and sports entertainment take place. So if I were to use kayfabe in a sentence, I might say, many within the wrestling business say kayfabe died when Vince McMahon told the New Jersey Athletic Commission that pro wrestling was a show rather than a contest. So kayfabe, a noun meaning the world of wrestling. Yeah, I think that definition in particular is uh, the best and most wide-ranging. It, it It is the thing that people most you, you most often use kayfabe to describe, but it is also, I think, the best and most easily understood version of kayfabe, that there is this permeable membrane around wrestling, and inside of that, permeable membrane is wrestling and everything outside of it is the world and the permeable membrane is kayfabe i I think is basically how i like to think about it do you have any illustrative examples uh, for that in terms of how you think about kayfabe when you're writing about it or when you're thinking about wrestling critically the analogy that i always like to use for kayfabe because i think if you're if you're about my age or older all these all these points are touchstones for you but i like to think that like in kayfabe uh han solo and indiana jones are two different people in the real world han solo and indiana jones are both harrison ford and they're both kind of the same roguish character type just in different settings but like in the world of kayfabe in the world of the movies han solo is an intergalactic bounty hunter and indiana jones is is a world war ii era uh, college professor so but so I, I always like that as example of kayfabe that even though indiana jones and han solo are both harrison ford in the world of kayfabe in the kayfabe of entertainment they're completely different people. uh yeah and i, I think uh, han solo han Solo, sorry, I'm not a Star Wars nerd like some people. I don't know how to pronounce everybody's name. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Luke, come on. <laughs> what kind of name is that? Um, no, but seriously. No, I think that was a, a great uh, analogy because it kind of, there's this idea that only wrestling uses these concepts and it's just not true. Like in the kayfabe world of Star Wars, uh, you would use the adjectival. Is that is that how I pronounce it? You just taught me this word, so that's adjectival, right? Mm-hmm. If you're using the word as an adjective, that would be adjectival use. It is true in the reality or the, I guess, the diegesis of professional wrestling television, uh, even if it's not actually true, which is like Princess Leia and Luke are brother and sister, but like we all understand that Mark Hamill and... Carrie Fisher are not 
brother and sister in the same way that like we understand Oli and Gene Anderson are not KF brothers and it doesn't hurt that they don't look alike. <laughs> like No, not at all. And I mean it really is it, it, it's it's one of the problems of the critique of wrestling too, like the or the not the critique of wrestling, but it's one of the problems with the general derision of wrestling is that like everything requires the suspension of disbelief both entertainment and any form of storytelling, because like, as you're saying, you have to buy in, you have to suspend your disbelief and, you know, believe in the performance of the actors. Or if it's just a novel, you have to like buy into the idea that these were events are real. It's the same for sports. You have to suspend disbelief. When you watch any one of 162 baseball games, you have to buy in, suspend disbelief and believe that that game really matters, that that individual nine inning game really matters. When you watch ice dancing during the Olympics, you have to suspend your disbelief and buy into the idea that ice dancing fucking matters, that there's anything about the performance in an ice dancing competition that's going to affect international relations, that being a gold medalist in ice dancing means fucking anything for the United States as a country or those ice dancers as individuals. That's all kayfabe too. That's all suspension of disbelief. And people like don't see it. It's just so silly that like wrestling is the one thing that everybody quote unquote nose is fake to the point that like when they make fun of the fakeness of wrestling they're like totally selectively blind to the the same degree of suspension disbelief that goes into everything else and they're also and i think this is more of like a classist thing to be honest they think that wrestling fans are rubes that don't get that it's not real especially now maybe when you're talking in the 60s and 70s when they are actively and this is the verb the verbal verb had it, <laughs> which is it just verb? The verbal usage. <laughs> to kayfabe, as in to use the word kayfabe as a verb. To speak or behave in a manner designed to preserve the false reality of wrestling for viewers and outsiders. As in, wrestlers who were feuding used to kayfabe by riding in different cars and staying in different hotels. Until All American Hero Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik got caught speeding with a bunch of drugs. <laughs> yeah, and the problem was. Or, or, or Nick, 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 I wrote this other sentence using kayfabe specifically for you, so you gotta let me get it out there. Nikita Koloff used to kayfabe that he couldn't speak English, which led to many misunderstandings and travel holdouts. Nikita! <laughs> Nikita fly! <laughs> where, where Nikita's bag? Where Nikita's bag? Nikita, check the bag at the gate! Where did Nikita's bag? <laughs> <laughs> why would you do that why would you just not sorry i'd love to make wrestling. money to make money i guess <laughs> i guess <laughs> but i think um and it's funny you bring up uh, i guess funny might not be the right word um but it's no it's funny it's fucking hilarious um the problem with jim duggan and the chic riding together was not that they got caught with cocaine it was the 80s. It was that one was a heel and the other was a face. Like one was, an all, one was an all-American waving the flag baby face and the other one was an evil foreigner, like an evil Reagan-era Iranian. <laughs> they didn't really like, and Dave, you can go back to the, the, uh, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter archives and they talk about this specifically. And he talks about it because he's the person that broke the story and he was mentioning whether or not he felt bad. Um, I think it's in 1992. I'd have to, anyways, um, they really didn't care at all <laughs> that they got caught with cocaine in a speeding vehicle. They were like, eh, what the fuck are you doing sitting with him? You can do this. Just don't get caught. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that I think is where 
the this class not maybe not as it is classist but not in a, as direct a way as it may feel like when you hear it of wrestling fans being rubes is that like the wrestlers themselves treated wrestlers them sorry wrestlers themselves and the promotions and the promoters treated them as though they couldn't handle the idea that like jim duggan and the iron Sheik were friends in real life i think that that's the kind of predominant read of kayfabe and that kind of like 1970s style kayfabe uh today but i think on the other hand like if you talk to promoters and wrestlers who lived during that era i think that they would say that that kayfabing at its core was like really for the fans in a way that because like wrestling had this stench on it that if you at least kayfabed if you gave the, the line that wade keller always is right you you have to give them a narrative to believe in like that, that if you gave them something to believe in and if you acted like it was real to you too, that that would ease the pathos of the fan for enjoying something that they knew to be bullshit and that they knew that other people looked down on. So in that way, I think the old timers would have said that kayfabing was for the fans. But at the same time, of course, it was really about protecting their own pocketbooks because, you know, that the any time that there was like a big expose or, or any time people stopped believing that usually would, you know, that there would be a sharp downturn in, in ticket sales. So, so on the cynical level, it was certainly something that was there to keep the wool over people's eyes and to keep them coming back to see something that was like a formula that, you know, that, that, that for whatever reason they weren't recognizing. So we weren't going to, we, we were just going to keep doing it as long as they were down with it. You know what I mean? But, but, but at its heart, I think the, the spirit of kayfabe was to give people that great experience. Like when people go to the opera or the ballet, so you, you were making the argument about, you know, class differences and how that comes into the perception of wrestling. Like when people go to the opera or the ballet, they believe that they're going to something really legitimate. Like number one, because the tickets are expensive and because you have to dress a certain way to go to it. And because people who have certain other high status occupations or positions in the community are associated with going to those events. And like, you just didn't have that in wrestling. It, so what, if they didn't have the legitimacy of, of being a pastime of the upper classes, they created the legitimacy of being something, you know, really rugged and really for the people. So it was, it, it was, it's the big lie, but as you say, from a class struggle perspective, it was the big lie to access a really important truth that mass entertainment and, and stuff that's designed for regular people is just as valid as as the the more quote unquote highbrow entertainment, you know? Yeah, there is a level of dedication to the craft of being a professional wrestler that kayfabing did and does like actually add to it. it it is a value added thing where having for instance and this is a, a pretty famous example sandman didn't leave his house for a couple of weeks after getting blinded by tommy dreamer accidentally um like he didn't leave his house he was living in philly at the time and wouldn't leave his house and like if you came to his door a infamous like would have like stuff over his eyes like he was keeping kayfabe and that, to me, was a function of the fans being, I promise you, ECW fans knew it was fake, but they also understood that what these people were doing to their bodies was real. 
So anything that pushed your character towards that idea, that state of mind was something that the fans appreciated because they were fans that believed that the show was fake. Or not fake, but scripted. Like they under ECW fans for the most part, I believe, understood the show was scripted, but also wanted to see and see if they could see the parts that weren't scripted. And when you put in that extra effort that gaining 60 pounds to be Jake Lamada in a wrestling sense, it's the same thing, except there's no Oscar to win because of that narrative. It's just you become a legend in the history of wrestling. Yeah, you know, it's it's like El Santo never taking off his mask or whatever, or even the tradition of like American masked wrestlers, like the the spoiler or Mr. Wrestling Two or or uh, uh, any of those guys from really like back in like the sixties and seventies of the like keeping the mask on, like not just until you're done with work, but like you get in the backseat of the car and you put the towel over your head and you drive five miles out of town before you have them pull over so you can take the mask off. You know what I mean? Or like in El Santo's case, he like showered with the mask on and didn't let the other wrestlers see his face. You know what I mean? Like, but there's, there's this commitment to performance that is, is, in some ways redeems and elevates wrestling. It's like one of the things that I really dig, I'll give a great like current example, is the other day uh, Bray Wyatt deleted all of his tweets. Everything that he had ever tweeted since he like opened the account. And like on in some ways it's, it's easy to be cynical and just say like, well, yeah, everybody, you know, nobody really wants their tweets from 2011 out there anymore. Like maybe everybody should do that. But like, on the other hand, it's like a great commitment to being like, this is a fresh start. This is where the messaging begins. I'm going to use this space to define my character and, and what I'm doing. You know what I mean? How he's just like really cleared out that space and used it to reset himself. And like for the last two, three years, ever since that Hell in a Cell match he had with Roman Reigns, I think that was the beginning of the end of... Uh, of Bray Wyatt for me. But anyway, uh, it's the most excited I've been for him in a couple of years because he just took something to like make what he was doing professionally seem like he cared in a really special way. Like, hey, I'm rededicating this space to my new renewed professional investment in myself. And I think at the end of the day, that's what kayfabe was. It was like wrestlers behaved a certain way as part of their investment back in the wrestling business. Like that's part of what they gave back to the wrestling business was that, you know, wrestling put food on their table and gave them a job where either they were a societal, you know, a societal undesirable, or if they were a failed professional athlete, or if they were just someone who, you know, couldn't do a regular job for whatever reason, like wrestling was there for them. And like, what did you do in return? It's like, well, you stayed at different hotels from the guy that you were going against and you beat up guys at the bar who said that wrestling was fake. Um, so, so, but, but, but I'm very excited for Bray Wyatt to see him sort of re-baptizing himself in kayfabe by deleting all of his tweets. Becky Lynch is another great example of this. I think she did an interview with Yahoo about uh, her character, and she did an interview with ESPN MMA about being the man. In the same way that a lot of promoters would have relationships with police officers and let them know things that's the kind of relationship you have with the news media where you're, you understand that Yahoo sports profile of leaders in industry, like a business leader, industry leader 
video series is a different platform and a different set of rules than you have on ESPN MMA when you're trying to sell a match between you and Ronda Rousey. Like those are two very different ideas. And there's this kayfabe around, there's this kayfabe almost by choice that fans can make and now wrestlers can make. You can decide to be like Alistair Black is another, I'm going to keep giving examples, but Alistair Black is maybe the best example. When Roman uh, went down with, uh, went down, (laughs) when Roman had to take his hiatus, uh, Alistair Black kind of broke character and thanked Roman for the work he did. And honestly, like, I'm okay with that in the magical world of wrestling. Like, do I wish like the, am I happy? Let me put it this way. I'm happy that the undertaker never had that opportunity, but I don't want to take away the ability of a performer to have a heartfelt like statement about someone that he worked with that he felt like gave him uh, like a good understanding of where his place is within the company and stuff like that. Like there, that's a choice though. It is now by choice. You just cannot follow, follow Alistair Black on Twitter or you can and understand that you might have spoiler alerts basically, but for his like real life. Yeah. And I think reading the room and like adjusting the kayfabe meter accordingly is like really one of the new traits that, that defines what wrestling stardom is headed into the 2020s. Wow. I just really used some of my marketing ease right there. Um, I, I had the pleasure of talking to Selena De La Renta earlier this year for, uh, for the wrestling estate. She is of course a manager in MLW, including uh, managing their champion low key. And um, one of the things that really struck me about her as I was interviewing her Um, without saying anything that kind of spoils the very spirit of this question is that like, I, there was, there was a a dial that was adjusted based on the question. So like when I am asking you about your childhood and how you grew up in Puerto Rico going to church, like there's a certain level of kayfabe that's applied to that. And maybe that's like a one or a two, but the second I ask, so tell me what's going on uh, with Conan. Like then it's like a ten. You know what I'm saying? I think that I think that that's the new superstardom is the knowing how to respectfully kayfabe to talk about ongoing angles and storylines and opponents. Because you know what I I hate to say it, but it's like if if you broke your opponent's neck in the ring, I want to see you on Twitter saying now he's going to have to kiss my ass. You know what I mean? Like that's just me. And I know that's not for everybody, including the WWE for a lot of reasons. But like I said, I think the new superstardom is, is the calibration of, of respect for the ongoing storylines and the feuds while also giving people the behind the curtain peak. That's kind of just become a huge part of the way the business markets itself. And I think part of that is this like uh, augmented reality overlay that wrestling has become because they've gone from claiming that like their wrestlers are movie star, their performers are movie stars and that we make movies, pal. (laughs) Or or that they're being covered by real news organizations to actually having their stars become movie stars and being covered by real or news organizations. So it's almost like the people that make it to that next level and become transcendent stars are the people who are just taking professional wrestling and kind of pushing it up on a higher platform. It's, it's a lot of the same skill set of like understanding when you're cutting a local promo 
it's different than when you're cutting a house show promo, which is different than when you're cutting a national promo. Like there are different levels to the understanding of what people are watching and it's knowing your audience and working with that audience at a given time. It's also, it's also on the other side of it, like saying your local sports team sucks. It is that those are the same. They don't feel the same because they're kind of all, but they're all on the same path. They're the same idea that knowing your audience and knowing how to talk to your audience about the things you're doing in inside and outside of the actual story is like you said, the future of people in the business transcending the business in the way that John Cena has and the rock has the rock still talks about wrestling and does so respectfully, but while explaining I'm a movie star now who loves wrestling. Cause I grew up in it. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think that we've seen this like new path. I mean, you know, obviously rock is the one who just like blew it open and became the biggest action star in the world. But even before with like Jesse Ventura there's this idea that, that people who have been baptized in the world of wrestling with that kind of, you know, kayfabe training, there's this, there's this really important balance of getting the job done no matter what in a way that is convenient for everybody, like not making a headache of yourself but also the commitment to performance at the same time. Like when you hear about some of the people who come out of the really big acting workshops in New York and LA, it's like, there's the commitment to craft, but is there necessarily the flexibility, right? Like I'm for whatever reason, the person I'm thinking of in my head right now is Christian Bale. (laughs) Let's say, Uh, you know what I mean? Where there's certainly the ability level, there's the refinement, but there's that inability to play well with others. And really when you're, practically making something, whether it's theater, whether it's television, whether it's a podcast, um, being able to work with others is, is just as important as talent. Um, you know what I mean? And I think that- Oh, definitely. hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Especially now, it, especially now when there's so many different people, so many different groups of people, people don't want to work with assholes anymore. Yeah. It's like, I've, I've, I always joke about this, that I used to do improv comedy and I'm not funny, but funny is only like the fourth or fifth most important thing. Uh, when it comes to doing improv comedy. And I think that wrestling, while people always make fun of the acting in wrestling, if there's, you know, five things that are important to being a movie star, I think wrestling makes you really good at the other four. So if you actually have the aptitude for acting or the commitment to dedicating yourself to acting once you're done with wrestling, I think that, that you can get there. And I think it's one of the things with the rise of The Rock in the last 10 years, that's really helped legitimize wrestling or at least WWE is that idea that there's these like soft skills involved in pro wrestling that that make people just good, balanced, manageable performers who you're going to get something out of. Yeah, you get all the benefits of like loving teamwork that and all of that shit that you get from athletes with the actual on the job training of an actor. It's a perfect combination, which is why like Batista is what moved so quickly up the ladder in terms of action is it's, yeah, he's a funny guy and he's a good actor and he's a great presence, but it's also, he seems like somebody you'd want to work with and enjoy. Like he's friends with Chris Pratt. Like you see him and Chris Pratt hang out. You're like, Oh, Dave Batista seems like a really fun guy to hang out with. And he can act decently and he has good comedic timing and he has this and he has that and somebody like john cena who's like the ultimate team player is very in terms of like how he presents himself it seems like he has that same dna of just like no i'm here to make sure that the show goes on i'm here to 
sell the like even the the press stuff afterwards that that like never-ending cycle of press questions doesn't seem to bother wrestlers because they're used to the grind of like i'm traveling 200 to 250 nights a week a, a, a year i'm not like having to sit down for six hours and talk to people about a movie i just made for three months yeah that's totally fine i have no objection to that whatsoever like yeah three week location shoot is nothing for a wrestler like because you're sleeping in the same bed every night like that is that is a luxury that wrestlers appreciate perhaps as well as anybody other than the literal homeless. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because they're nomads for the most part. Like they have their home bases, thank God, for for them be able to make enough money to travel the world and then go back and, you know, have to pay for their trip. Anyways, independent contractors, it's fine. <laughs> but I think that what you've seen is this development of kayfabe as an understanding of everything has kayfabe that like the the kayfabe of keeping kayfabe and acting is like i mentioned the method acting is that's keeping kayfabe that's that's all that is is keeping kayfabe there there's nothing else to it i don't mean that in a bad way i mean like daniel Lewis is the one of the greatest actors i've ever seen he's a professional wrestler that's all he is he's just keeping kayfabe I mean, there's a lot of other shit, but like he he is that character and he lives in that character in the way that they used to in professional wrestling and still do for the most part. Like a lot of wrestlers have become that personality turned up to 11 where like I think that Daniel Day-Lewis is doing the like introversion of yourself into another person, but it's still just keeping kayfabe when they talk about him on set. That's all that is. Yeah, it's like I mentioned Christian Bale a minute ago and I mean, he's another, you know, famous method actor. And I think that, Maybe the contrast between Daniel Day-Lewis and Christian Bale kind of speaks to like what I think wrestling gets really right is there's that like famous recording of Christian Bale flipping out on the guy, you know, the, 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 the stagehand or whatever. And it's like, that's something that a pro wrestler would never do. Like the pro wrestler would never be unable to do the promo because the sound man was moving around in the background. Like uh, we've talked in previous episodes about like promo day. And one of the reasons that, people used to really hate people who were bad promos was because they held it up for everybody that if somebody had to do 12 takes that meant that you might be there till fucking 11 at night recording promos and so there's this just like get it done at any cost and i think that that's an important regulator to put on the method acting approach like you said method acting is a certain style of kayfabe but i would say and maybe this is the class warrior in me to some degree that it's kind of a self-important form of kayfabe like it's kayfabing even beyond a wrestler like when two wrestlers are in a car together like i i don't think the grappler like told other wrestlers they couldn't call him len when they were in the car you know what i mean that like that that i think that once again that's why wrestling is doing so well at kind of spinning out celebrities in the in the social media in this kind of new media era is because like I said, there's this, this dedication to, to the craft, but at the same time, this bigger dedication to getting shit done, like making sure that you can do it no matter what. I think that's kind of one of the great things about the wrestler approach is like, well, whoever's ankle is broken and he's got to go get surgery tomorrow. And, uh, the, the other guy we've got to substitute because he, he his car broke down, but we're going to record a match and we're going to do an angle to write this guy off TV the right way rather than just having him disappear. Like that's the part of kayfabe that I think the whole world 
needs to learn from that like even if you've got to just like drag the guy out to the ring to do the angle that writes him off it's like you fucking do it because that's one of those little stitches that like keeps the fabric of everything together it's it's that dedication to continuity and to the work at hand and like making sure the thing is decent and is something that people can be proud of both being a part of and consuming yeah and i think that continuity is something that is important in part is because you've seen what I guess you'd call is like the, the DK fabrication of a lot of things. Like I think uh, what you, the magic, I guess you would call it of let's say uh, fancy restaurants has been taken away or uh, demystified by shows like chef's table, even more so than like the competition cooking shows, which uh, for avid listeners is actually how this show got started, but it's a whole different thing. You see more and more these things that you thought were seamless and were just this thing that was real life more or less and not this entirely constructed reality that you're entering uh, are actually construct are basically the same thing as wrestling. And I think the best example, and this is something we both have a ton of experience with is retail. I think that uh, especially now, and both of us are thankfully out of retail for the most part. Um, there was for a very long time, this idea of like trying to create a quote unquote seamless experience for the customer that didn't allow for you to break kayfabe of just like, no, this company kind of sucks and we're sorry you have to shop here, but we understand it's the only option in town. Yeah, certainly. And it's funny because like you're talking there from the perspective of like someone who did like retail at a mall. I did retail at an independent bookstore where there's this whole other kayfabe of like, by coming here, you're smarter than the people who are going to Barnes and Noble or who are ordering the book on Amazon. So there's this whole other game that you, you know, have to play uh, with the customers and also with the, the higher ups or the older employees who have been there a long time. And it just reminds me of stupid stuff like when you look for, let's say, stock of a certain item on your backend computer, what people don't realize is that is literally just other idiots at other stores claiming whether or not something is there half the time. Because a lot of these things are kind of obscure things where there's two or three and they're like, we're sure we have it. But here's here's a special secret. Uh, inventory isn't perfect. Like you have a lot of mistakes in these massive and they don't people don't realize like you do inventory checks at bigger stores like Staples. I worked for Staples for a number of years. Um, you do all night inventory checks where you literally go through each item. But like even that doesn't take into account for like the shit that you got fell into the back of the store that no one can get to. It fell behind like a brick wall somehow that got closed in and now that it's there in the system, but it doesn't exist. I know that sounds extreme, but like there are times when things that are supposed to be there and, it, and people think it's magic. They think it's just like, oh, everything's just magically you've not at your fingertips something that can be taken uh, that can be pulled in for you at any given time and and i think that people have kind of moved away from that because of internet shopping like they understand stores don't have that magical power anymore but when i was working retail there was this idea that like you could not be a real person you had to and and i say this is someone who's heard dave take more than one uh business phone call uh you have that business phone call voice like hi staples east islip nick speaking how may i help you and that is the most kayfabe shit in the world yeah i mean even even you and i who are extremely white like do the white voice on the phone you know what i mean <laughs> like it's a it, it's a thing unto itself and yeah it's 
I guess it's a way that maybe increasingly people our age, I mean, I think it's part of the hashtag millennials generation gap. I think that increasingly people who are, I'll say, 40 and under now uh, are, are increasingly less likely to want to participate in that game. Um, it used to be like the, I don't know, I think if this is like a horrible stereotype, the other end of the spectrum, but there's the like Hank Hill, right? Like he sells propane and propane accessories. His whole life is about propane. He thinks his boss, Buck Strickland, is a great man because he employs him, even though he is constantly bombarded with evidence that his boss is a terrible person. Uh, but he uh, won't, he keeps secrets for him. He keeps secrets for the whole idea of propane because that is his livelihood. And I think that, as I said earlier in the show, it's like the the wrestlers really kayfabed for the fans. I think that people used to really value kayfabing for your employer, like putting on that face that you were an extension of them. And I think for whatever generational reasons, people yours and my age and a little older and a little younger are, are less likely to participate in that than say people my parents or your parents' age. And I think part of that is and it's silly, but the, the like the the way news aggregation works, you get a lot more stories about the like like commiserating stories for retail people to go and kind of like talk about these things, but not in a way that like you used to complain about what happened at work with people you worked with, but you wouldn't necessarily like post it online, and it became like I think that broke the like the the idea of like this is fucking stupid like this is stupid that we're all acting like this is some sort of seamless experience that we're really like these people and i think there's a difference between not being a shithead and being a fake person interacting with other people and i think that's the kind of stuff we've moved away from is that we don't want things to be like mysterious or have a mystique necessarily we want to understand them and why they work. I think we're, and this is not to like toot our own horn, but like, I think the internet has made us a more, for the most part, uh, people who are actually interested in a more inquisitive group of people. Not everybody, obviously they're stupid idiots. Uh, I'm going to drop in <laughs> Chris Jericho doing stupid idiot. Um, but there's this idea that I think, again, I, I don't want to generalize too much, but that, we a capitalism sucks <laughs> that's a big part of it i think there's been a massive shift against the the kind of commodification that makes this stuff necessary um of employees of trying to create again it's not a seamless experience just between online and in the store it's between all of the stores and the company it's this idea of creating a bunch of uh like automatons that just spout the company line and people don't want that because they know that the incentives, the people that are acting like that are doing so at the pest of their companies who have incentives that are not for the benefit of the consumer. So I think that's why kayfabe in general is something that people don't, people don't necessarily want to know how the sausage is made, but they're okay knowing like what animals are in it. Does that make sense? To some degree, but I, I think that there's there's certain contexts where like when I am on an airplane, let's say, like I am someone who, although I have done much flight in my life, I am not a, not a fan of it. Uh, but like when I'm on the airplane, like I, I want them to kayfabe a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I only need to know what I need to know and there's no need for me to know that there's bad weather coming up, but we're going to go around to go under it and then come back up to our cruising altitude. Like I don't need to know all that stuff because that's like, too much information. Like, 
I I appreciate the uh, you used the term like mystique earlier. I appreciate the mystique in in situations where uh, maybe I don't want to think about it, <laughs> or maybe the whole point is to not think about it in certain situations. So I think that while I think it, it's it's obviously good to be truth seeking and, and all that kind of thing, I think that like it is true that you can really fry your brain with an excess of information about things that aren't germane to your daily life. And I think that the way wrestling fans have gotten about wrestling is like a really, really good example of that. So as the, as the show's stock defender of the monoculture, since you're just tearing it down with your, with your claws and your nails and your teeth, you animal, you, uh, but, uh, but as, as, as the resident defender of the monoculture, there's just those scenarios. It's like, when I am at the state police barracks waiting to get fingerprinted for my teaching job, I like want to think that everything going on behind those doors is like really important and like really justice -y. And when I go back there to scan my fingers to get fingerprinted, I don't want to see that someone has their feet on the desk. You know what I mean? Like that's a great example of a, a kayfabe breaking moment from my real life is going to the state police barracks, sitting in the waiting room, hearing everything come across the dispatchers or in the waiting room, and then going in the back and seeing people with their feet up. Like the kayfabe of planes, the kayfabe of, to some degree, public service. Like I think that there's, there's, there's a certain, I don't want to say veneer of competency that needs to be maintained, but I, I think that it's, it's important for things to, to look a certain way to engage the public confidence, I guess. Yeah, no, and I think there's a, a difference between uh, what we're talking, what I was talking about, which is mystique, and what you're talking about, which is like basic etiquette and discretion. And I think the discretion is the important part. I think pe my, the the people our age and younger are looking for are fine with discretion, but mystique for the sake of mystique isn't something we're as interested in as previous generations because it is so easy to find out who the man behind the curtain is in ways that weren't as possible in previous generations. So you could, in the back of your, there was no way for you to get that information. So you weren't like, well, I have to find out that information and find out that this is really bullshit, man. Like, uh, like Harry P showing up on David Letterman to talk about how GE owns NBC and how they're polluting the rivers around New York was like something that was breaking the kayfabe of that world. And that's good, but that's because GE, kind of created a mystique around themselves that they didn't own NBC and weren't, you know, in charge of their news organization. It's this idea that we don't want to be lied to, but we're okay not being told the whole truth. Do, do you agree with that? Is that a better assessment of you th where you think we are? Um, I, I guess I, I agree with what you say, that people are less likely to, to take things for granted and they want to know the guts of things better. But I guess the timeline hasn't, we haven't been dedicated to this long enough to see if the results are actually better because of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it sounds better because knowledge is better than ignorance, right? Like, I guess it's a basic statement. Yes. People tend to believe that. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't think that like, I think the proof is in the pudding and we like, we don't have the results to be patting ourselves on the back for like tearing down the old <laughs> ways yet. I, I'm sorry. I, tell you, I guess I'm like a regressive in some ways with that. I'm not saying that, things are bad and need to be improved. I'm just saying like, you can't pat yourself on the back for knowing that they're bad and wanting, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. I, 
No, no, I totally understand what you're saying, which is that like kayfabe is good, but not inherently. Kayfabe can be good, but it doesn't have to. The level to which you quote unquote maintain kayfabe is not necessarily either an indication of your actual acumen or aptitude for what you're doing. And B, isn't as necessarily noble within and of itself. That there has to be a reason for not keeping kayfabe in a traditional sense of not being like wrestling's fake, but in keeping kayfabe in a sense of not explaining detail by detail how you do each individual move because that's unnecessary information that doesn't get to the truth of the matter it is just more facts that we have to parse through yeah that, that's like uh color that's like some old school wrestlers will talk about a lot of things they'll talk about who the booker was they'll talk about who was a dick backstage etc cetera, etc cetera. but a lot of wrestlers won't talk about how they got color you know what i mean that there's that like line where they're like, no, 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 like this isn't just like how the sausage is made. These are actual trade secrets about how the sausage is made. And I am holding that back for the both of us, for myself as a professional and for all the other professionals who are out there on the same grind as me and for your own benefit to to help you like it better as we always come back to. Yeah, and I think uh, we talked about this off mic. It reminds us both a lot of the idea of magic, which has a similar problem. Like you had the uh, magic secrets exposed exposés in the 1990s. I think that's what it was uh, on Fox. That that yeah, late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, definitely. yeah. And what they did is they broke the mystique of a lot of magic tricks, and they also had a pro wrestling secrets exposed. But that was like not how wrestling was at the time, so it felt really, really palpably outdated in terms of like the secrets they were trying to expose weren't really secrets anymore. Um, but you, this idea of I don't want to know how you did that trick. Like, just do the trick. It's less important. I want to know whether or not, like, someone's actually hurt because I have concern for their well-being. But I also appreciate them, like, selling the leg during the match. Like, I appreciate kayfabe in the applicable sense, not in the, like, in terms of being able to apply it to individual situations and say, is this kayfabe or not? And I, I just think that mystique has to be maintained in order to maintain the integrity of the overall thing. But it is more the glue that holds everything together as opposed to the entire foundation of the thing we're watching, which is what it used to be. I guess really we are kind of coming back to something that we discussed in some of the very earliest episodes of this show. And that's this sort of like, uh, like structuralist versus post-structuralist kind of, kind of look at things and I tend to come from somewhere as a as a writer, as a critic, as whatever the, whatever I am. Uh, like I, I tend to be someone who thinks about structure and relies about on structure a lot. It's like a running joke on the show. And like as someone who is myself a storyteller, I, I talk to other writers about this sometimes. Uh, I, I am someone who like when. I write, I need to know everything before I start drafting the actual text of the manuscript. I need to know everything that happens in what order and what is going on with all the characters throughout the whole story before I can actually quote unquote write the story. So that's where I come from. And in that way, I see, or through that lens, I guess, uh, I, I see kayfabe as the the structure that holds everything together as the like fundamental set of rules that you're playing by like kayfabe 
is the Bible. It's a real sports league. They're all competing towards the championship. And there are personal issues that at times become just as important, if not more important than the titles. But those personal issues uh, start in the ring or start out of personal rivalries due to relative positioning in the ring. And when I talk about kayfabe, I guess that's what I really mean. That it's a sh that wrestling is not a show about wrestling. Wrestling is wrestling. Wrestling is a sport and the wrestlers are athletes. And the point of the show is to promote fights between those athletes. Um, and yeah. So that's what kayfabe is to me. And I think that when you start there, just everything is tidier and everything is easier to fall into place. When you already have that underpinning nailed down, you can plug in things in a way that at first seems formulaic, but in the long term is actually way more empowering and way more artistically freeing than, than just cutting from whole cloth and redefining the business every six months. Because like, oh, now we've said that Vince owns the place. Oh, now we've said that Vince is kind of a jerk to people. Oh, now we've said that Sean's kind of a jerk to people. Oh, now we've admitted the Undertaker's not dead. You know what I mean? Like that, that progressive need to redefine kayfabe or or chip away at it i think has significantly negatively impacted the, the the keep it simple stupid aspect of the wrestling businesses which is what always worked about wrestling i guess so that that's my long-winded uh, monologic explanation uh clarification of my position sir yeah for me i guess kayfabe is to wrestling what physics are to video games which is to say that for instance when you used to play tony hawk pro skater you could do moon physics and you could do like crazy shit where instead of doing a, a 900 you can do like a 2160 spin and that was fun up until the point where it became the only way you could do well in the game uh was to basically break the physics of the game and i think that Allowing a, a wrestling, for instance, to have exaggerated uh, ways in which they pull the world asunder as we understand it, like what you're talking about, is fine if you're not constantly chasing that, like pulling at the fabric of space-time within the context of what you're watching. Like, you don't have to keep doing that. One pull that creates a black hole through which everything gets sucked. Okay, that was incredibly dirty uh, <laughs> named Vince McMahon or Mr. McMahon in this case is I think enough. You don't have to also be like you said, Oh, the undertaker isn't actually dead, but they wanted to do it because they lost the thread of what they were doing, which is like, we want to live in this world, the world you have created already. We don't need a completely different literal universe where all of the physical rules are different we just want the show we were watching that is slightly more crazy and i think that it took them an incredibly long time and i don't know if they're even close to being there yet but and this is what we talked about that we there is a move back towards and i think becky lynch in a lot of ways is leading the charge though there are a lot of other people and i think twitter in particular is helpful for it that are trying to break, the, like put piece back together the the physics and rules of the universe that they're in, without with, while evaluating each individual piece 
and each individual rule within that context as opposed to just being like, we have to put everything back the way it was. And that's not what you're saying at all, to be clear. I'm not implying that. But uh, they don't want to put it to everything the way, the way it was, but they also understand that that world had value and people were interested in it. The idea of it being uh, not necessarily a show about a fake sports league, but a fake sports league's uh, show is I think what they want to get back to. And I think moving to Fox will help a lot with that because of the way Fox is going to present it. But I think that long-term they have to get back to that. And I think the women's division and the women's division being traded like a different weight class more so than uh, like, look at the ladies, aren't they crazy? Is a really important part of that, that you're trying to use the verisimilitude that, Ronda Rousey create that Ronda Rousey now exists as like a platonic ideal for of a woman being the stars of the show because they're the best weight class and they're the best performers is, is where they can get a lot of that back instead of just, because what happened with the men is you basically had to justify why the big show wasn't champion for 20 years. And people like the big show weren't champion for 20 years. So you had to make up these more and more convoluted things instead of just understanding that like, just say once the big show doesn't care about being champion. He knows he can be champion anytime he wants. He make him like, I understand that it's important to have goals, but have him be want to be the most dominant person in the company and doesn't want to deal with all the bullshit that comes with champion. If you want to like make it so it doesn't have to be so like direct as an excuse, but like it became, we have to tell stories about why these people are like magical angel babies that are perfect at wrestling as opposed to like these people are wrestlers and they're fighting against each other. And I, I think that's where you saw the divergence is they didn't know what to do after they broke all of the physics of like people not being able to beat up certain people. And like, I don't think the cruiserweights were bad, but I think they never figured out what to do with cruiserweights that were popular until maybe the last two or three years. And people who are smaller than like you're at, like that Grecian ideal that Vince has, I think he never figured out how to move past that until the women came along and it was like, oh, people like them and they're just, well, just oh, cool. All right. And I think that's why you've seen partially a lot of momentum is he almost feels relieved by the success of the, he doesn't, I, I, it almost feels like he doesn't feel like he necessarily has to try. He just has to not fuck up the women's division. I definitely think over the last five years that the narrative has become that the women can and will carry the company if Vince can get out of their way. And in a sense, like that's almost become the new kayfabe in the post Daniel Bryan world is like, oh, everybody else knows that this is it, but like, can we get it over on Vince? Or is he gonna want to have Roman Reigns? Yeah, yeah. no, and now that we've uh, solved all of the problems with kayfabe, because we are in fact the smartest and best fans and know better than everybody else. uh, Kayfabe, Nick. Oh, sorry, Dave. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm working myself into a shoot here. You're totally right. So uh, I have a question I've been thinking about this entire time. Actually, it's kind of a weird one if if you're not super familiar with like old timey wrestling. But what is your favorite kayfabe like rule or weird quirk? Like uh, there, there's one that I like. I'm not. It's not going to be my example, but uh, that in Japan when you roll over the figure four, it doesn't do anything, and in America it can murder you. <laughs> 
that's my favorite little thing is like the rule the differences between kayfabe in different countries of just like no that doesn't hurt in japan it's just a reversal of a move and you both get out of it and in the u.s it's like you can kill rick flair if you flip him over when he's in the figure four i mean there's all sorts of great ones like i mean just the fact that the presence of food coloring in water changes it from being like mildly surprising and and disrespectful to being like acid that's burning it in your eyes. Uh, my favorite, it's not really a rule, but my favorite, my favorite kayfabe thing is the the this is like a Memphis gimmick, is the heel reaches into his tights and he pulls out a fist. And obviously the fist is, you know, loaded up with some sort of dastardly royal quarters or piece of rebar or whatever. He pops the guy with the fist. And then he opens his trunks, puts his fist back in, and opens his hand back up, having never actually produced any gimmick from his tights. Jerry Lawler still did it occasionally in like some of his Bret Hart matches in the early 90s, I think. But it's like a, it's just an incredible total bullshit thing. I'll give you one more, one more favorite little kayfabe thing. And it's very similar to that last one. When Gary Hart used to manage Mark Lewin, he would be, he would be standing out on the floor and he would hold his hand over the second rope from the floor and he would be holding like a towel like a washcloth like a trainer's towel in his hand and he would hold it over the second rope and wave it very theatrically and lewin with like the with the the sneakiness of a large bear would uh back up to where this towel was being flicked and reach back with his hands behind his back like oh no one could see my hands because they're behind my back and he would reach under the towel and once again produce the phantom gimmick hidden in his fist, pop the guy, walk back to the ropes and pass the the non-existent uh, Nux back under the trainer's towel to Gary Hart. So, so if you're hitting someone with a loaded fist that's loaded with imagination, you are my hero. Uh, loaded boots were also a similar thing in that vein of uh, like uh, who used to like kick his foot uh, like kick his foot to the ground and it would like load the boot <laughs> well that's the, the grappler len denton that was originally his gimmick i think raven who was a big kind of student of his uh, one of his kind of proteges he used to wear the one boot with the slightly thicker sole to kind of do this i don't know if he ever actually tapped his foot on the mat but raven would do the same thing where one of his boots would have a big thick platform on it that was very theatrical for everybody to see yeah um mine is actually a rule that they adhere to which i think is the silliest rule which is the tag team rope like you could have the most intense blood feud match in the history i mean guys like setting each other on fire but those motherfuckers aren't gonna tag in unless they're holding on to a tiny little like the smallest little fucking bright white string they just use it it's the funniest thing in the world to me it's like no no no, no. it doesn't get like you can stab somebody but you have to tag in while holding the rope not like being within a certain amount of feet there's no like line it's just this rope and it's to maintain like a visual i guess like a visual attachment to the corner but i just find it to be the the tag team rope for me is like a dumb wrestling rule that they added to make it seem more like a sport but it just makes me think about how goofy fucking wrestling is it's just very like 1970s like it's one more thing in the baby face's way while the guy in the ring is doing the sell like oh that damn rope is just so fucking short if he had an extra six inches of rope ricky could have gotten him you know what i mean like it's, it's yeah and it's it, it's also like the uh, closed fist as opposed i have never in my life as a wrestling fan seen someone disqualified by a non-crooked referee for a closed fist unless like 
that I can remember. Maybe you have, but I have personally never seen oh, no, it in a match that wasn't like a screw if job. If I was starting a wrestling promotion right now at the dawn of 2019, I would heavily enforce no closed fists. I think that would be something that you actually could do that would like be really different and not to sound too much like Bill Watts, but obviously you can still do a closed fist, but then the guy is cheating. You know what I mean? Like it's like, I, or, or then it's something the baby face can't help but do when, during his fired up comeback because he can't take no more. You know what I mean? Like, but but I, I, I actually love that rule because it's not boxing. It's wrestling. You got to grab a hole and wrestle him. So, yes, I am all about the no closed fist rule. I, I also love the referee counting to the five count on like anything. And I love how depending on the era – it's like you might be doing a five count for like standing on the guy with one foot, or you might be like doing a five count for putting a kendo stick under his throat and choking <laughs> him on the middle rope. And that's fine for four and a half seconds. <laughs> and of course, Daniel Bryan's favorite part of the American Dragon Daniel Bryan gimmick is I have until five, which he brought out last night at the TLC pay-per-view, which like for a, a long time Daniel Bryan wrestling at, uh, Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson fan, it warned the cockles or the sub cockles at least of my heart. Um, yeah, there's kayfabe. I think we've I've been especially critical of kayfabe during this episode. I still love it. It's still like one of my favorite parts about wrestling is like the goofiness of adhering to the stupid rules. Oh, oh, oh! I've got one more. I've got one more. I've got one more. I've got one more. Any two people with a vague physical resemblance in build. So like one guy could be like six, four and the other guy could be like five eleven, let's say. And like, as long as they're both under hoods and maybe if they're wearing anything, it's a matching color, full body suit. Those people are completely <laughs> interchangeable. Sorry, continue, continue. Oh, you mean like twin magic, but with the twins from the movie twins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Edge and Christian under the conquistador's hood. Like, oh yeah, there's no way to tell these two guys apart. One of them isn't six inches taller and a hundred pounds heavier. Uh, so yeah, did you have anything to plug this week? Well, my big plug that I'm even putting over myself, my goodness, is patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. It is the Christmas season, boys and girls, time for all your favorite toys to find their way under the Christmas tree. You know what I'm really hoping for, Nick? I'm really hoping for money from our listeners <laughs> who will then become patrons. What kind of bennies will they get as patrons, you ask? Well, they get a shout out on the show. They get the follow-up files, our notes afterwards, and they'll get... First dibs on The Pod Beyond, our all-new War Games podcast that'll be debuting in January. That's just a, a little taste of what's going on there. There's more and more stuff constantly being added, constantly being brainstormed. Uh, we are a break-even, as I always say, at about $30 a month. Uh, I really encourage people to jump on board at the $2 level. I'm just hoping to get, you know, 15, 20 people there. Maybe we can break even each month. Maybe we can sock away, you know, 5 or $10 each month so we can afford some new mics, some new sound equipment, some new foam to deaden things, et cetera, et cetera. So it would be really, really great if between now and the end of the year, you would make us part of your holiday celebration uh, with a pledge going into 2019 of $2 per month. You can, of course, do that over at patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. If you have any questions about uh, Benny's, if you want to see some examples of the follow-up files or uh, know more about what we have planned for the new year, you can also hit me up on Twitter at Dave Wrights junk and uh, i'd be happy to talk to you about the uh, patron experience yeah and you can check me out at the nixer that's t-h-e-n-1-c-k-s-t-e-r 
Yeah, I spelled that right. Uh, and I didn't say it like I was from Long Island. So that's a two for two this week. Um, and you can check us out at HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. As Dave mentioned, we are starting to do some heavy-duty work on the podcast beyond. Um, <clears throat> we will also be re-premiering our YouTube series. Um, I-, I wanted to rework some things so we didn't end up doing the same episode every week. Uh, you definitely want to check that out. Uh, those will all be coming in January, different points we'll be mentioning. But uh, most of all, and this is important, definitely listen to tomorrow's episode of the show. Uh, we will not be doing a part two of the kayfabe episode because everything is kayfabe, so it's really hard to do essential viewings of kayfabe uh, in a meaningful way that don't have, require you to explain the entire context of the thing you're watching and then the ways in which that context was completely broken. Uh, so we just decided we would have uh, Jeb Lund uh, of Dave and Jeb Aren't Mean, which he ho- hosts with David Roth. Uh, it's a podcast about the Hallmark Network's series of movies on Christmas and many other things. And uh, that's part of our discussion on the idea of Hallmark movies and the things they have in common with wrestling, which is a surprising amount unless you really get into the nitty and gritty of what a Hallmark movie is, which is what Jeb and I did. And then Dave and I come back and we, of course, talk about the Tupelo concession stand brawl, as is tradition on these shows. Uh, But yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, I don't want to say I am not I lack the ability to process pride in my work, but I didn't hate this episode. Uh, so I definitely would like it if you guys check it out. Um, yeah, I can, I can definitely wholeheartedly endorse the nitty, although I found the gritty to be a little sandy. <laughs> Don't. We are a pro gritty podcast, man. It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV. Daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others. Cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox, sitcoms like Seinfeld, and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. However, due to the live nature of Raw and the war zone, we encourage some degree of parental discretion as it relates to the younger audience allowed to stay up late. Other WWF programs on USA, such as Saturday Morning Livewire and Sunday Morning Superstars, where there's a 40% increase in the younger audience, obviously, however, need no such discretion. We are responsible television producers who work hard to bring you this outrageous, wacky, wonderful world known as the WWF. Through some 50 years, the World Wrestling Federation has been an entertainment mainstay here in North America and all over the world. One of the reasons for that longevity is as the times have changed, so have we. I'm happy to say that this new vibrant creative direction has resulted in a huge increase in television viewership, for which we thank USA Network and TSN for allowing us to have the creative freedom, but most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. Raw and the Warzone are definitely the cure.
to bite your tongue, take your hand. 